Welcome to the second edition of Plugged In. We're very happy to have Senator Shelley Moore Capito. She's the top Republican on the Environment and Public Works Committee. Really appreciate you uh, being on here with me and, and uh, former FERC Chairman Neil Chatterjee. Thank you, Josh. Good to be on with you too, Neil. Good to see you. Great to see you. Great. Well, yeah, we, we definitely want to start with, with some of the the news of the day and things that are that are happening in Congress. Uh, you know, I know I know you. Uh, you know, you recently have, have spoken about just how the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mean, you, you feel like that that would really move the ball and kind of how Democrats are handling reconciliation. It's almost like you know you, you stop it. You know, right before the end zone kind of thing. Do do you? I mean, do you regret voting for the bill given that Democrats are are really now you know attaching to the, this to their larger reconciliation package? I mean. Do you, do you, you know, would you want it to fail at this point? You know, what do you kind of make of how Democrats are, are handling it? Well, I absolutely do not regret uh, voting for the bipartisan infrastructure package. If I can back up a little bit, um, you may recall that I was really the Republican that put out a Republican alternative to the president's infrastructure uh, idea, his, uh, his jobs bill, so to speak. And I said, let's narrow this down. Let's narrow the focus. Let's talk about traditional infrastructure roads, bridges, water, uh, transit, um, uh, uh, broadband, grid, water. I've probably left something out, but those kinds of things. So I, I tried to focus in on that. And the president was focusing in on that. And eventually that's what came about. That My bill is basically the, the big bulk of what is in that bill. The other part of that bill that I think is important to remember is Senator Carper and I, through our EPW committee, passed a surface transportation bill, five-year reauthorization, very robust bill, and also a water and waste, drinking, safe drinking water and wastewater bill, very robust bill. Those are the two building blocks of the infrastructure. We passed both those bills out of committee unanimously, and we passed the water infrastructure bill off, this, off the floor of the Senate with a huge bipartisan margin. So I think that shows you that there is a core group, more than a core, huge majority, of senators who realize how important infrastructure is and to modernize and to make safer and, and, uh, and more resilient our transportation sector. The one area that has caused the biggest trouble obviously is when it got over to the house side, it was then um, they, she told her members that we're gonna, let, we're gonna let this infrastructure bill be passed first. But I think what happened was uh, the progressives uh, and this is all very public, the progressives said, no, we want to spend another 3.5 trillion. And so they inextricably linked these. Now we went to great pains in the Senate to say, these are not linked. This is an infrastructure bill and here's a social infrastructure bill, physical and social infrastructure bills. So I don't regret that. I think that's something that we need to do and reauthorizing these huge programs, whether it's the roads or the water is something that we've always done bipartisan since I've been here and have probably over the history of the programs. Are you surprised at all, sir? You know, uh, President Biden has this reputation. He, he was in the Senate for a long time. Uh, obviously, uh, we all worked closely with him and his team uh, when he was vice president, and particularly during that period of time when we had divided government. Uh, and he seemed to have an effective understanding of the legislative process. But, you know, he kind of moved the goalpost with you a little bit, and then things got restarted, and, and uh, uh, this new group sort of came together to put together the, the BIF. Passes with 69 votes, a really impressive package that didn't raise taxes. And then I was shocked 
that he kind of whipped against it in the house, his own bill. That mm-hmm. just, to me, confounds me that a guy who spent so much time in the legislative process is having such a hard time with it. Are you surprised at how he's handling things? I am surprised because when I began with him, honestly, in earnest, he he definitely, uh, we had uh, shared goals, and that is to work on something together that realizing that we're not going to get everything that we want. He knows that's the way the legislative process works. Ha- you know, he's a deal maker. He said to me more than a few times, you know, I miss the give and take of the Senate. What happened was he and I would strike some sort of tentative agreement or or like-minded uh, mission in terms of numbers or scope. And then the staff would pull him back and say, no, you can't do this. He didn't really mean that. And I think that's a problem. And maybe they were, you know, uh, going back to their other parts of the wings of their party to try to see. Here's number one, the president needs this. He needs this, not just for the country because it's good, but it's because it's bipartisan. He's got a lot of negativity coming his way when you look at crime and immigration and inflation and Afghanistan. He's had a host of big negative uh, items that he's having trouble shaking. And, uh, and so a big, broad infrastructure package would be to his best benefit. And I think, honestly, I just think the progressives, ha- they must have had more votes than what we had uh, approximated. We, we thought maybe 20 votes by the Republicans, which would free up your most hardcore uh, progressives. I mean, obviously, that's what you do. And um, there must have been more, more uh, people on the left that were balking at this. And so, again, he doesn't want to look like he's losing. So he gets on this, the winning side, which is the wait and see side, which I, I don't think time is good for something like this. I wish he passed it and we were you know, at the bill signing right now. Right. And, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Neil. I was going to say, speaking of folks who had a reputation of being, you know, legislative master strategists uh, and, and, and are struggling right now, what did you make of the chamber supporting the bill and then, you know, getting barred from strategy calls with the House Republican leadership now coming out against the bill? Well, and I think uh, the the next part of that story is that Neil Bradley at the at the chamber, who we both know well, I, I, I uh, he was on the House side with the Representative Cantor when I was there have a lot of respect for him and, and also for uh, Suzanne Clark, who's head of the, uh, of the chamber. I think what happened, now they've sort of walked it back and said, wait, 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 we're still for the physical infrastructure bill. But um, I think the taxes that are in the 3.5 trillion are so enormous and so punitive to job creators that the chamber had, you know, has to express more uh, and needed to express more um, clearly their opposition to that. And if, and if in fact, they're going to be tied together and if they get tied into a, a, a solitary package, I don't think it can pass back over here. So um, I don't know what his strategy was there. I think he was just trying to go along to get along, quite frankly. Just, just curious, just curious what, is, what is the relationship right now between the chamber and, and Senate Republicans? I know there's been more kind of more of a well-publicized rupture in the House with Republicans. What's, well, what's- I, yeah, and I think, you know, I was speaking about the president there. I should have gone back to what the chamber, I think the chamber is, uh, has been criticized for supporting candidates that are now not supporting their uh, initiatives. And I think uh, that's where you see that they're sort of in a, a lose-lose position right there. Um, I have a great relationship with the chamber, always have. It's mostly through our local chambers, our state chambers. I think that's what most people operate with. Um, certainly the U.S. Chamber is important and 
has backed a lot of candidates. Um, and I think, I think what, whenever you see an organization try to play with what has been a, or, or uh, play is a, not a good term, but I'll use it anyway, play with an organization who's normally be contra to what their beliefs are, you always get burned because in the end, people go back to their core philosophies and, and their core philosophy uh, on the on the Democrat caucus is to spend and tax, and that is at, uh, at great odds with what the U.S. Chamber wants to do. So I think they have a little making up to do, and maybe a little humble pie to eat, and realize, wow, I thought we'd get a little more cooperation. You know, the winds just don't blow that way mostly, and I think they're learning a tough lesson. Hey, let's let's transition to, to reconciliation and what Democrats are, are trying to do. You know, from, from our lens, I mean, we really do look at it as, you know, climate climate policy is kind of central to what Democrats are trying to do here. We, we like to call it the social and climate spending package. Um, yeah, I know you, you've, you know, you've spoken out against some of these core provisions, including this clean electricity payment program or performance program. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, 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 what in particular, you know, do you not like about that program? I know proponents will say, you know, it's actually a creative way to not make it a mandate. I mean, you're kind of incentivizing utilities to move to cleaner sources or penalizing those that aren't, but, you know, there's no hard and fast mandate. There's the flexibility in there. What, what's your, uh, what are your concerns? Well, I think that if you look at, um, you know, I, I realize that we're in a transition here in terms of our power generation. Um, just to frame it, uh, if you look at what happened to West Virginia during the Obama years, we still haven't recovered from this. There was no transition. It was just basically, and Neil knows this too, because he, he's from Kentucky, right, Neil? So, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, you know, you, there was no transition. So, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a fear, but it is a dread of what could inevitably come if there is no transition. So th if they're going to present this clean energy payment system as a transition. If you live in a state such as mine or other states, we're not the only ones, but we probably have the highest, 93% of our electricity is generated by coal. Coal is gonna be the first thing, yeah. So how do you transition a coal plant into, you know, or a coal producing uh, sector into a renewable sector uh, by having it go up 4%. So if it doesn't go up 4%, you're gonna make them pay. You're going to make them fine and pay and fine and pay. And it's and then what are you going to use? You're going to use that money to help the states that have been able to transition, the states that have more money. Um, and, and so I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a downward cycle for a lot of states such as mine. And, I, you know, I'd like, you know, we're cleaning up now. We have natural life to our coal plants, uh, CCUS, we've got 45Q going, we've got other things that could be helpful in terms of uh, sequestration and, and utilization. So I'd rather see us on the innovation side instead of the punitive side. And I, and I think that it picks winners and losers and um, it, it could be a point of what would happen in my state. It could be in my state that the cost of electricity becomes so expensive that you know we're out of the market for new jobs, we're out of the market for new manufacturing, and 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 that becomes a uh, another cycle of uh, destruction, such as we saw during the Obama administration. Yeah, I'm sure you. You, I mean, you know your you don't you, yeah. you, 
you know the folks in West Virginia, you know, uh, better than anyone. Uh, you know your constituents. Uh, you know, there's a, a faction uh, on the uh, progressive side that has said, you know, climate is what could sink the bill. No climate, no bill. Uh, is there any way Senator Manchin could support this kind of stuff and, and still uh, be able to justify it to, to voters in West Virginia, the CEPP, possible carbon price, um, you know, some of the some of the Methane. climate oriented spending? Methane fee. Uh, I mean, do you honestly see any way that any of this flies in West Virginia? You know, I think these are the most problematic parts of it for anybody from our state. Uh, I think that uh, the tax provisions that they're going for uh, and that are generally, I, I don't think that that's a problem for Senator Manchin. He's basically said that. But some of these green energy prices were, I mean, you know, uh, Mark Christie at, the, uh, at, at FERC said, you know, we're going to have a reliability problem in West Virginia, a generating problem in West Virginia, um, and we'll lose all these jobs and, and the customers are going to have to pay. I don't know how anybody from West Virginia could support this. The methane taxes is, is going to be very onus for our growing natural gas business. We have huge Marcellus Shale and Utica Shale development. It's been a great way um, to, you know, move us out of coal in some, in some sense. Uh, that's a problem as well. Um, you know, these clean energy standards, those are all, they're all really difficult for us. And, you know, I, I'm sure that some people listening are going to go, you know, hey, get your head out of the sand. This is the direction the country's moving. I get that. I, I get that. It's just, let's, ha let's have transitions. Let's, let's try to figure out if we can do carbon capture, you know, uh, from, from the general air. Let's find out if we can uh, uh, sequester it into other places besides using it for uh, oil, um, enhanced oil recovery. I mean, there's all kinds of questions that still, I think, need to be answered, and they can be answered over time. But as, even as this is going on, as we talk right now, emissions are going down, and the, a lot of this is voluntary. Where, where do you, where do you think Man Mansion lands, though? I mean, he he strikes me as someone who I don't know. I mean, will, will he really be the guy who just who's you know topples the Democratic? Agenda? Is there a way to structure a CEPP that's more lenient to gas that promotes carbon capture as a clean source? I mean, can I mean, can you see a, a, an avenue where, where he's there in the end? Well, yes. The answer, the short answer, is yes. I see. I see a. I see a way for him to be yes because uh, um, of a lot of different factors. But what I I would think is interesting to note, and I haven't talked to him about this is that in the signed agreement, I don't know if you saw it, that supposedly yeah, yeah. he signed and, yeah. and um, Peter Schumer. Yeah. Schumer signed, that one of the provisos in there is that the clean energy payment plan and all of this would go into his committee. In other words, he would have the ability to write that legislation. So if you ask the Greens, uh, what is your big um, green energy piece of this? It's the clean electricity payment plan. That's the one they go to. That's the one that's most problematic for our state. So I don't know how he rewrites that, although um, I speculate that he, and I've heard that he's, he would try to rewrite it and include natural gas as something that could qualify because it's cleaner than right. other alternatives. So that's the way you get to a yes for him. How about for you? Does that make sense to you with that? No. No. Why? Why? No, because, you know, because I don't think, first of all, there's never a consideration in my mind 
for the person who gets up every single day, and regardless if they're in the energy industry, but let's just say coal mining, well tender, uh, engineer, electrician, that tied to these energy industries, where our, where our country's energy independent. The advocates want none of that. They don't want fossil fuels and they don't care what the consequences are enough to even moderate a position. So I think even what would look on the face to be a moderating position, we all know that the real meat of it is what's written in the regulations. Uh, what kind of uh, what kind of standards could you write so that maybe one or two uh, natural gas plants might qualify, but everybody else is you know below the standard? And and so I, I think I, I just have great skepticism here because I see the direction that uh, this has been headed. As your state uh, uh, sees more and more of the benefits of, of natural gas, you know, uh, during my time at FERC, I saw firsthand how inexpensive, easily accessible, reliable natural gas is just putting tremendous pressure uh, in the markets on coal. Uh, you know, what, what, you know, I'm from Kentucky. I, I've seen firsthand the devastating impacts of when mm -hmm. uh, the power plants shut down and the mines that feed them shut down. Uh, what can we do for these uh, these coal communities as they get pressure from renewables, they get pressure from regulations, they get pressures from mandates and subsidies, and now natural gas is is just putting a lot of downward pressure on coal. Um, uh, what are your What are your folks in these communities uh, uh, saying? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, and I know this is a slice of time, but um, I was talking to some coal folks mm, ten days ago. Everything is up. The price of met coal is up over four, you know, spot price up over 400. You know, that's up from under 100 or maybe 110 for met. Now, met coal, for people who don't know, is the coal that you use uh, to um, make steel. And there's a shortage worldwide. So they're exporting their um, one coal operator told me that they had planned to uh, maybe mine 200 million tons of coal. They think they're going to be up over 800 because of uh, the demand and they really could go higher, but they can't, they don't have the work. They don't have the workers to do it. So, or, the, or they weren't prepared to do it either. So, so right now, and you and I both know coming from our states, coal is definitely boom or bust. So they're booming right now. Um, and so I think, you know, it's a transitional thing. There's other, other things to use coal for besides generation of power. It's, it's a strong material. It, it, it has great heat capacities. It, um, it can be used where you don't have to, you know, have it releasing, uh, releasing carbon in, in rubberized products and construction materials and things of, you know, wallboard, all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's lots of uses here. And I think that, so there's always going to be a bit of a demand for coal. Plus it's the baseload power generation. So if, you know, if the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing and we don't have battery storage, we better have something like coal, natural gas or nuclear to hold the to hold the baseline. And uh, and we can see this. So, you know, I think in our state, I think everybody's realistic to know it's never going to come back like it was. We've lost a lot of jobs. People have transitioned. Some have some have moved away. We lost population over the last 10 years. Some, unfortunately, have had health issues. So it can go one way or the other. Um, and so, but, you know, we don't need to, I think we don't want to put all of our eggs into a natural gas bot, uh, yeah. basket either. So yeah. we need to be start looking at, and we are high tech, um, um, innovation, entrepreneurs, uh, small business, uh, 
outdoor recreation, all kinds of things that West Virginia, I think, has real potential for. Yeah, on, on, uh, on natural gas, just with the, I mean, I'm just curious what you make of what's happening with, with the energy markets right now with the, the surge in natural gas prices. It's especially bad in Europe, but we're seeing some, some uh, you know, increases here to a level we haven't, you know, we've maybe taken for granted with, with the shale boom, just the level of supply and, you know, that we've had at, at our at our f- fingertips. But uh, I mean, are you concerned about, you know, high, higher bills here this winter that's translating to, to customers? And yeah, I mean, you know, people, you, you mentioned, you know, not wanting to depend too much on gas. You'll hear proponents of, you know, more of an aggressive green transition to say, well, this is why, you know, fossil fuels in general, but, you know, we're too dependent on the commodities and just how, you know, the rise and fall, uh, uh, you know, of supply and demand. What, what would you say to that? I would say that, uh, yes, I'm concerned about a senior who can't pay their heating bill in the winter. I mean, that is huge, especially when you live in economically challenged areas uh, such as we have um, quite a few in our state. So that worries me. People on fixed incomes or people just trying to get started where a power bill doubling is significant. And so, yes, I worry about that. Um, At the same time, uh, I think that we need to realize that we're energy independent in this country and we shouldn't shy away from that. We're now exporting a lot of our natural gas, LNG, which is a new phenomenon for us. Because when I first came to uh, Congress, we were building building import terminals so we could get it from somewhere else. Now they're export terminals because we have so much. Do you worry if we export more to, to keep up with, you know, the demand in Europe that there's less, you know, here, here at home, or do you, do you think, you know, there's, there's plenty to go around and the you know, U.S. producers will pick up, you know, pick well, up I think there is a plenty to go around, but here's yeah. the problem. Can you get it? Can yeah. you get permitted? Do you have a pipeline? Do you have the right. infrastructure? We see uh, in our state, we've seen obstructionists uh, try to bar pipelines and very successfully did with the, um, the Atlantic coast and our Mountaineer pipeline is 94% finished, but they can't get it fully uh, permitted to do it again because of court cases. So there's such a, and you know, obviously there's other pipelines around the country, but there's such a pushback on that. If we don't have the infrastructure, I'm not worried we're ever going to run out. I'm worried we're ever going to be able to get it where you can use it. Yes, but we're not going to run out. We used to be able to get those pipelines uh, certificated through FERC, um, you know, careful examination, didn't cut corners, made sure they were safe, uh, 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 didn't sacrifice environmental quality or uh, uh, shortcut landowners. Now something that used to be a matter of routine is getting really, really contentious. Uh, When I was at the commission, we had protesters come to the commission meeting, to our homes, to project sites. Um, are you concerned about the direction things are going to where here West Virginia has this great opportunity uh, to transition its energy economy and can't get a pipeline built? I'm very concerned about this because your alternatives are rail, uh, trucking. Uh, if, if you can move it, if you can liquefy it, I guess you would have to liquefy it at the, at the source maybe. And to me, that's just much more dangerous, a, a modern, safe pipeline is the safest way. Lord sakes, we have them all over the place. So uh, I'll take a, for instance, on the Atlantic, or I guess it's Mountain Valley. um, It got held up because it was going under the Appalachian Trail. It got held up on a technicality because the Forest Service couldn't permit, you know, all this. It just was round and round and round. And um, it had to end up going to the Supreme Court before uh, that could be decided who, who could permit under the Appalachian Trail. Now, under the Appalachian Trail is the Appalachian Trail is on the top of the mountain. 
and under it is underground, you know, 700 feet below. So these are not, you know, these aren't people walking three feet over a, uh, a pipeline, which I'm sure we're doing every day. So, I, you know, the, the opponents are clever and, and very smart and very well-funded. So I think that's where I think what you said, Neil, is really important. Follow the direction of all the permitting, which these folks try to do. Don't try to skirt any of the environmental regulations because number one, that's not a good thing to do. Number two, you're going to get caught and it's going to be expensive and try to anticipate. I think it would be better for the permitting agencies if they would tell people, and we tried to get this actually in my pipeline um, permitting streamlining bill, tell people ahead of time, if you see red flags in your permit, go ahead and let them know. But sometimes it waits all the way to the end of the process and go, well, you know, you know, you can't do this on Third Street because that's, you know, sacred ground for, you know, something. And, and so we, we just need to do a better job here. But there are, there are, I mean, a lot of people that are anti-pipeline. Senator, I understand you have to run here. Uh, so we want to, we want to get in one more if, if, if you can. Just, I understand you've been, you've been very, you know, very interested in, in the Biden administration's uh, emissions reduction pledge as part of the Paris Agreement, the NDC. You know, here we have COP COP 26 in Glasgow uh, at the end of the month, October 31st. Uh, you know, first of all, I want to ask: are, are you planning to attend that? Um, and and you know, what what do you see as as kind of the Republican role here? We know Republicans have been more you know proactive on climate than in the past. Um, you know, maybe in, in past conferences we would see Republicans maybe try to uh, you know play more of a defensive role and kind of you know prevent you know, I don't know, you know, be prevent countries from, from, from committing to something like this, but what, what, you know, what, what would you hope comes out of it? And, and just, you know, your concerns specifically on, on the NDC. Yeah, well, I, I'm not going to the conference, um, but I do believe that we as Republicans and me as a Republican, we need to be part of the solution. I mean, we cannot um, uh, act like, or pretend that we don't see storms that are increasing or heavier rainfall or ice that's melting. I mean, this, this is obvious that there is a, there are things going on in our environment that we need to pay close attention to and we need to be part of the solution. So I, I definitely agree with that. And, uh, but what I would worry about is number one, the transparency. What are the, what are the um, parameters that we're basing our ability to have uh, climate targets on? What are we basing harm on? What are we basing health effects on? Are we basing it on what we think might happen or what we know might happen from scientific data? I, and we can't get that transparency. And I think that's a reasonable thing to ask for. If you're going to make a decision that's going to have heavy impacts economically, we need to know what you're basing this decision on. And they basically, I can't get the EPA to help to tell us on a lot of these things, what they're basing decisions on. The other thing I would say is Let's be very careful about making agreements, global agreements, where we're the only ones signing the agreement with maybe Germany and the Europeans, and we're leaving behind the biggest emitters and the biggest polluters of India and China, who are developing economies who are very strong, and so uh, particularly China. So I, I think we need to we need to make sure that we are not disadvantaging our workers. Uh, at the cost of 
uh, countries that don't pay attention to it, number one, but number two, yeah. kind of get off scot-free. And I think we've done that in the past. Just a, just a quick follow-up. Do you think the U.S., though, should, is it appropriate to make a pledge? I mean, you know, the Republicans have been resistant to net zero. You know, I'm resistant target. to make a pledge until I see what everybody else is pledging and then where the, where the science is behind the pledge. But you know what? I fully expect we'll probably be making a pledge. That sounds like something that President Biden promised and, and John Kerry will carry forward for him. Speaking of that, if I can sneak in one final question, Senator, you and I both know very well, personnel is policy. The people that fill these jobs in administration have incredible uh, ability to, to, to change policy outcomes. Your committee plays an important role evaluating folks for Senate-confirmed positions, yet you have some significant power players who are making decisions about environmental policy who are not subject to Senate confirmation, who did not go before your committee, I mean, do you feel that's appropriate that Secretary Kerry's playing such a big role in this, that Gina McCarthy has such a prominent role in the White House on environmental policy when they never went before your committee? I absolutely think it's very highly inappropriate. I can't ask for transparency there. I can't go back to Gina McCarthy and say, what are you making these decisions? We fully believe that all the decisions are being made out of the White House by her uh, and her staff. She does have well-placed staff members that uh, did get confirmed, uh, Janet McCabe being one of them within the EPA that have been down this road before with her. And, uh, and so uh, I think that all those decisions are made at the White House and uh, they are unapproachable in terms of transparency. And no, I don't think it's appropriate. And I don't know what the heck John Kerry's doing. Cool. Well, well Senator, we really appreciate your time. You've been more than generous. And uh, yeah, thank, thanks for, for doing this with us. Sure. Thank you all. Thanks for, yeah. thanks for being care. plugged in. All right. I'm plugged in. Bye-bye. That's a wrap, everybody. Uh, appreciate you listening. We'll have another episode of the Washington Examiner's Plugged In podcast. It's going to come out every Tuesday around noon, so stay tuned. And also, don't forget, uh, if you don't already, well, I know, I know you do, but if you don't, uh, subscribe to my newsletter, Daily on Energy. You can do that also at WashingtonExaminer.com. And uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you next week.